Section 8 of Stupor Mundi, The Life and Times of Frederick II by Lionel Alshorn. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 4, King and Emperor, Part 2. Meanwhile, what of the crusade during these years, and of the vow that Frederick had made at his coronation to lead an army into the Holy Land in the following August? The appointed day passed by, and year after year succeeded, but still he lingered in his kingdom, determined to bring his work there to some measure of completion, before he would turn his eyes to the east. Honorius chafed under the delay and entreated and threatened in turn, but death overtook him before he could see the attainment of his cherished desire. Immediately on his arrival in Apulia, Frederick realized that it was impossible, with his kingdom in such a state of disorder, to fulfill the promise made at his coronation. Oh, that you would consider, wrote Honorius, how wistfully the Christian host awaits you in the east, believing that you will postpone all to Jerusalem, especially since the Lord hath granted you such means for the enterprise. The emperor replied that those means were not so plentiful as the pope supposed, that his treasury was so depleted by the expenses of his coronation, and by the constant supply of men he was sending to the east, that it was not possible to set out himself in August. He asked for a further respite until the March of the year 1222. Meanwhile, he sent a fleet of forty galleys to aid the Christian host, which had already accomplished the capture of Damietta. The fleet tarried on the way and arrived too late. Urged on by Cardinal Pelagius, the papal legate, the crusaders had advanced into Egypt with the intention of besieging Cairo. Their army, consisting of six thousand knights and forty thousand infantry, and headed by King John of Jerusalem, and the grand masters of the militant orders, was lured into the pursuit of the sultan's forces which had encamped on the banks of the Nile. Had they awaited the arrival of Frederick's galleys, which could have supported them on the river, they might at least have averted disaster. But without adequate supplies or an open way of communication by water, they were gradually enmeshed and isolated by the sultan's horsemen, and compelled to submit to an ignominious treaty. Damietta, which had engaged the efforts of the Christians for an entire year before it surrendered, and before whose walls so much Christian blood had been shed, was now yielded back to the infidels. The sultan was gracious enough to grant his humiliated enemies a sop to their wounded self-esteem in the shape of the restitution of the true cross. A truce was agreed upon which should endure for eight years unless a crowned head should come from Europe to lead the Christian host. The surrender of Damietta caused a profound gloom throughout Europe and plunged Honorius in grief. Although the impatience of the legate Pelagius was responsible for the disaster, the Pope vented his indignation upon the Emperor. For five years, he wrote, men have been expecting your crusade, they now throw the whole blame of the disasters in Egypt on the Pope, and not without reason. We have been too easy in sanctioning your delays. Owing to the solemn vow made by you at your coronation, and owing to your letters to the crusaders announcing your speedy arrival, they rejected the proffer of Jerusalem. We shall spare you no longer if you still neglect your duty. 
we shall excommunicate you in the face of the Christian world. Take heed, then, like a wise man and a Catholic prince. In the April of the next year, Pope and Emperor met at Veroli. They agreed to proclaim a great assembly at Verona in November, at which all the great princes and prelates of the empire should attend and debate with the temporal and spiritual heads of Christendom upon the ways and means for a united effort to redeem the loss of Damietta. November came and found the Pope stricken with illness, and the Emperor immersed in Sicilian affairs, and the assembly was postponed. Another meeting between Honorius and Frederick took place in March 1223 at Ferentino, at which the veteran crusader, King John of Jerusalem, the Patriarch of Jerusalem, and the Grand Master of the Knights Templars were present. Here the emperor explained the various causes which had hindered him from fulfilling his vow, and declared that the state of his kingdom was still too disturbed to allow him to absent himself or even to dispatch a sufficient force to the Holy Land. Supported by King John, he urged a further delay of two years, which should be spent in the endeavor to arouse Europe to a supreme effort. Honorius was reasonable enough to accept the proposition, and once again the crusade was postponed. At the same time, Frederick burdened himself with a more intimately personal interest in the matter. His wife Constance had died in the previous year, and he now betrothed himself to Yolande, the young daughter of King John. Yolande was the rightful heiress, through her mother, of the kingdom of Jerusalem, and Frederick might thus expect to add yet another crown to his sovereignty. The two years of delay passed away and left the prospects of the Crusades no brighter than before. The days of the old enthusiasm were gone. England, Germany, France, and Spain could not be roused to ardor even by the personal exhortations of King John. Northern Italy was coldly indifferent to the expostulations of Cardinal Ugolino. Frederick himself was still busy with the ordering of his kingdom. Once again the disappointed Pope had to bow to the force of circumstances, and an agreement was framed at San Germano by which the crusade was deferred for two years longer until the August of 1227. The Emperor bound himself by severe penalties to start for the East by that date, and to maintain a thousand knights in the Holy Land for two years. As a guarantee for the fulfillment of this pledge, he undertook to pay 100,000 ounces of gold in installments to King John and the Patriarch, which amount was to be forfeited to the Pope if he failed to embark on the enterprise. Any breach of the treaty was to be followed by his immediate excommunication. Honorius might well think that at last he had bound the emperor hard and fast. Soon after the meeting at San Germano, the emperor took unto himself a second wife. As a boy of fourteen, he had wedded a woman of twenty-four. Now, as a man of thirty, he espoused a bride of fifteen. If at first sight the marriage of the little Yolande at such a tender age seems revolting to our English notions, it must be remembered that womanhood ripens quickly in the South, and that fifteen is regarded as a perfectly marriageable age in modern Italy. The direct result of the wedding was a violent quarrel between Frederick and the bride's father. 
King John asserted that he had consented to the match under the impression that he would be allowed to retain the crown of Jerusalem, which he wore only by virtue of his marriage with Yolande's mother, the Queen of Jerusalem, during the remainder of his life. The emperor, however, insisted that as the husband of Yolande, the crown and all its rights legally reverted to him. The old warrior was forced to yield, and departed from the emperor's court in high wrath, shorn of his royalty. Two stories were told to account further for the bitter hostility John hereafter displayed, but both were obviously concocted by Frederick's unscrupulous enemies. The first relates that John had in his follower his nephew Walter, who through his mother was the grandson of the usurper Tancred, this Tancred, it will be remembered, had dispossessed Frederick's mother of the crown of Sicily until Emperor Henry VI had regained his wife's inheritance. Frederick, it was asserted, looked on Walter with no friendly eye and determined to be rid of him. He invited him to a game of chess and arranged to have him stabbed while absorbed in the game. King John heard of the plot, dragged his nephew away from the board, cursed the emperor for the son of a butcher of Jay-Z, and departed with all possible speed. There is no shadow of credibility in the slander. Not only was such a dastardly assassination entirely incompatible with Frederick's character, but there was no motive for such a crime. It was not possible that the powerful emperor, who was king of Sicily both de jure and de facto, should regard the grandson of Tancred, the usurper, as a dangerous rival, whose existence was a menace to his own safety. The other story is, unfortunately, slightly more probable in one of its features. It asserts that soon after Yolande had been crowned empress, King John found her in tears in her chamber. He inquired the cause, and she sobbed that her husband had denied her the embraces that were her due, and had taken her cousin into his bed in her place. The old crusader at once bearded Frederick in his chamber, and after speaking his mind very freely left the court. The emperor was so ruffled by John's tirade that he threw Yolande into prison. The story is plausible in so far as we may be sure that Frederick, whose ideas on matrimonial fidelity were entirely oriental, did not give to his young wife the monopoly of his embraces. At the same time, it is very unlikely that a man of his amorous character would neglect a girlish and beautiful bride at the very outset of their matrimonial career, still less likely that he would cast the child into prison in his wrath against her father. Moreover, the fact that two years afterwards she bore him a son, and that they always appeared to be in perfect amity, shows that there was no deliberate and sustained neglect or dislike on Frederick's part. Whatever the cause of John's enmity and the loss of his crown is sufficient to account for it without the support of these two spurious stories, the rupture between the most powerful sovereign of Christendom and the most prominent crusader of the day was not likely to be conducive to the success of the efforts that were being made to arouse Europe to united action. Moreover, relations between Frederick and the Pope were dangerously strained. In 1226, Honorius threatened excommunication for various offenses against the church in Sicily, which the emperor had committed in pursuit of his policy of reducing all classes in his kingdom to obedience. 
Frederick was just then starting on his expedition into northern Italy, and he considered it advisable to calm the Pope's anger, as the papal influence was so strong in Lombardy. He accordingly addressed a conciliatory letter to His Holiness which averted the threatened storm. The Emperor's journey into the north was prompted by the most peaceful motives, if any matter connected with the crusade can be termed peaceful. At any rate, he meditated no aggressive action against the Lombards. He had resolved to hold a great diet at Cremona as a last preparation for the crusade that must start in the following August, 1227. He sent a circular to the Italian cities ordering them to send their warriors to Cremona and summoned his son Henry to bring the German chivalry to the meeting. The reply of the Lombards was a long series of insults, vexations, and open hostilities. Cremona, Parma, Reggio, and Modena alone sent their deputies to pay their respects to the emperor. Bologna shut her gates against him, and with Milan stirred up Piacenza, Verona, Brescia, Faenza, Mantua, and many other towns to renew the Lombard League. It had been originally formed against Barbarossa to defend the liberties of the Lombard cities. It was now renewed against his grandson in an aggressive spirit which was entirely unwarranted by Frederick's peaceful mission. King Henry, advancing southwards with his Germans to join his father, found his way barred by the impregnable walls of Verona, and he returned. A meeting between father and son at this time might have averted the unfilial conduct which Henry later displayed, and the emperor never forgave the city that had rendered such a meeting impossible. The proposed diet of Cremona was rendered entirely abortive by the wanton hostility of the Lombards. The emperor had not come prepared for a military campaign, and was not able to enforce good conduct upon the sullen cities. He had, therefore, to content himself with words. He pronounced the ban of empire against the Lombards, depriving them of their laws, corporations, and all the rights they had gained by the Treaty of Constance, which they had wrested from Barbarossa. The Pope, indignant at the obstacles they had placed in the way of the crusade by preventing the Diet, empowered the Bishop of Hildesheim to support the imperial ban with the papal excommunication. Frederick returned to his kingdom, compelled to retire before the menacing attitude of the League. God, who knows all secrets, he wrote to Honorius, is aware that we postponed everything to his service, that we attended the Diet in the spirit of love and graciousness to all men, and that we showed hatred to none of those who had offended us in our empire. We showed ourselves merciful, and we did and bore many things which we should have neither done nor borne, had not the holiest of all causes been at stake. But instead of peace, we found uproar. Instead of love, we found malice, and all our efforts could not tempt the Lombards from their unrighteous course. Moreover, owing to their wickedness, the late Diet had no results, although summoned on behalf of the holiest cause. How they have sinned against God, how they have damaged the honor of the Church and that of the Empire, Your Holiness will easily estimate. We entrust the whole affair to you and to the Cardinals. This amounted to a request that Honorius should act as arbitrator between Frederick and the Lombards. 
the emperor was anxious for the success of the coming crusade and was willing to forego his revenge rather than hinder the cause the lombards also consented to the papal arbitration and in january twelve twenty seven honorius pronounced his decision the emperor was to release his enemies from the imperial ban and both sides were to restore all prisoners the lombards were to maintain four hundred knights in palestine for two years and to cleanse themselves of the taint of heresy the date fixed for the departure of the emperor for the east was rapidly approaching in the august of this year he must at last redeem his long postponed vow or suffer the penalties in which he had himself concurred honorius might at last believe that he would see the fulfilment of his long-cherished desires but the hand of death intervened and in the march of twelve twenty seven the aged pope was borne to the tomb with his gentle soul there passed that precarious peace that for seventeen years had endured between the empire and the papacy end of section eight